Assurance of Pardon is sponsored by Logos Bible Software, the most advanced Bible study tool for both ministers and laypeople. Available on iOS and Android for phones and tablets, as well as on your Windows or Mac computer or laptop. Get the most of your time in the scriptures with Logos Bible Software. For more information and 15% off your next Logos package plus five free ebooks, visit assuranceofpardon.com slash logos. Now on with the show. Welcome to Assurance of Pardon, a podcast about the gospel, the Bible, the church, what it all means, and why it all matters. I'm Scott Davis, pastor of Hope Presbyterian Church in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And I'm Gage Jordan, assistant pastor of Youth and Families at First Presbyterian Dyersburg in Dyersburg, Tennessee. Gage, here we are back uh, uh, for our talking, Seeing Jesus, Reading Christ in the Old Testament series. Uh, thankful for our listeners and their patience with us as life and ministry and family has is happening. And it sometimes we don't get these episodes out at the in the schedule we like, but uh, we are grateful for everyone's patience and glad to be with you today uh, via Zoom. And uh, yeah, before we go any further, uh, I want to remind everybody that if you enjoy Assurance of Pardon, you would likely enjoy uh, other podcasts in the family of podcasts to which we belong, which is the Society of Reform Podcasts, uh, podcasts like uh, the Reformed Brotherhood and Distilling Theology, among others. Uh, so go to reformpodcasts.com and check them out and uh, check out some others. You can subscribe to their mega feed and you'll get all of their podcasts in one subscription every time one goes up. So uh, there will, if you are frustrated by the slowness with which with which we upload podcasts, you will always have plenty to listen to if you'll subscribe to that mega feed. So check those brothers out and you will be blessed by it. Gage, we are here. Uh, we've been moving through the uh, Old Testament, seeing Jesus. And now we are at Second Chronicles. So, is Second Chronicles really worth reading? That sounds like a a, a boring book that probably uh, you might just skip over. Why, why is Second Chronicles important? Well, before we get into Second Chronicles, Scott, uh, we actually have a milestone we need to celebrate. I don't know if the listeners realize it or not. We recorded our seventy fifth episode uh, last time together to start First Chronicles. Um, so thank you for the listeners. Thank you for, um, to Scott. We've had a lot of fun with 75 episodes. This is episode 76. Uh, and, and we'll, we'll have to get a birthday cake or something for episode 100 to do something special. We'd love to hear feedback from our listeners on, on what we should do for episode 100. But as we dig into second Chronicles, yes, you absolutely should read second Chronicles. Um, if for no other reason, then all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching correction for reproof and building up um, that we may be equipped, right? It's the holy inspired word of God. But but also because there's some there's a lot going on in this book that it is really, really neat. I think it's important that we, as we've talked about before, we understand and kind of the outline and the goal of what's happening in Second Chronicles. A lot of people don't know this, and I actually doing some research myself. Uh, came across this second Chronicles isn't written during the time in which these things are happening. Second Chronicles is actually written depending on which scholar you talk to. It's written several hundred years after these events have happened. So you would think why, why is that taking place? Well, because this is actually written when the people of God are returning 
from Babylonian captivity. They're coming back uh, into the to Israel, back into the promised land, leaving leaving Babylon, leaving Assyria. They're coming out of out of captivity from these two areas, from Israel, uh, Israel and Judah, and gathering back into their own nation. And the writer of Chronicles, because originally First and Second Chronicles was one book. Just like in a in a real sense, Luke and Acts are two volumes of the same historic historical narrative, right? Luke is a historian, and so um, Chronicles was written with the intent of reminding them: okay, you've been gone, you've been in ba- captivity, the city has been destroyed, you've been away from your land, generations have have passed. God still has one goal, and the goal is that there is going to come one from the from the seed of the woman that's going to crush the head of the serpent going all the way back to Genesis. And that goal is going to come from a, a Messiah who's going to be a prophet, priest, and a king. And he is going to come as the son of David from the line of David to reign, whose rule and reign will have no end. And so the writer wants you to understand that. And the the Holy Spirit wants you to understand that. And so we have the narrative of the Chronicles in this fashion. And that's that's really, really important because um, understanding it and reading it in that light, you're going to understand why things are the way they are. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, And that sort of context, that sort of background helps uh, a reader get their bearings. If you know a little bit about uh, the original audience, this is hermeneutics 101, right? Is to know, uh, who is the original audience? What was going on, uh, that when this was written? Um, if you, if you miss that, you can, uh, that's missing context. Missing the original audience is the first step to misreading scripture. That's absolutely right. So then it helps to understand that as to why things are mentioned in, in first and second chronicles and things aren't mentioned. For example, you'll notice in First Chronicles, it's it's telling you the story of David, and in Second Chronicles, it's telling you the story of Solomon and then his descendants. And what you won't find is Bathsheba mentioned in First Chronicles. What you won't find in Second Chronicles is any of Solomon's concubines and many wives and many failures in that sense. Is it because they want to whitewash history? No, that not at all. But it's because the intent and the the goal is for you to get a sense and a pattern of what this Davidic line and this Davidic hope is going to feel like. And you're always going to have this tension of uh, good king, bad, bad king dynamic. You see it in Second Chronicles. There are some good kings right? Um, that do well, that, that serve the Lord, that try to build things. For example, the beginning of Second Chronicles is going to, to start the narrative of Solomon. And Solomon is going to ask for wisdom, or he's going to, yeah, ask for wisdom out of all the things he could be asked for. He's going to be given riches. He's going to establish the temple. He's going to dedicate the temple, build the temple, right? Um, Solomon's temple is actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Like it was right. that significant. Um, and it's not because Solomon is this epitome of perfection, right? I think that's really, really important for us to understand. You know, we also oftentimes read our Bibles like um, like it's a uh, Marvel comic book, right? There's good guys and there's bad guys, and we want the good guys to win. Noah 
was just as sinful and evil as the rest of the planet. The Lord just chose him. Let's not forget, Noah still ends the story post-flood, naked and drunk on a beach, right? And so same thing with Solomon here. Solomon's not perfect, but he points to the hope of a true and better king. And so you see things like Solomon's asking for, for wisdom. And the funny part about that is, just so you can see how your Bible fits together, read Solomon's um, acceptance of wisdom here, and then go read Ecclesiastes. Because what you see is the the outcome and how the story ends of Solomon thinking, okay, I thought I was going to gain wisdom by experience. And so I, bi- I built all the things. I read all the books. I slept with all the women. I had all the money. I bought all the stuff. I did all the things. And the wisdom I actually gained was how foolish the rest of that was in life. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. That's right. That's yeah. right. Um, and the important thing here, when you read Solomon and then you go read Proverbs and you go read Ecclesiastes is that it's not some sort of fortune cookie, right? Or it's not some sort of impossible metric like in Proverbs 31 for, for women to try to obtain to, right? That actually, believe it or not, chapter one to chapter 31 is about Jesus in Proverbs. Amen. Amen. And I don't, and I don't want to spoil it for when we get to Proverbs, but I do want to tell you, if you haven't yet, go to TikTok, find Chad Bird's account and sub- subscribe to that, that joker. Chad has a great two minute video on there about Proverbs 31 um, and about how Proverbs 31, even though it, it's written from the direction of, of the, the woman, it's actually about Jesus. And it's actually not some impossible law for our, our ladies to obtain. Real a lot of freedom, a lot of, lot of great things. And where does Chad and and where do we get this idea? We get it from the scriptures. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 30. Jesus became wisdom to us, right? That's right. Jesus is the personification of wisdom. So even when we see Solomon seeking wisdom and trying to, to walk wisely as a king over the people, that is just a shadow and a type of the one to come, the true and better king, who is wisdom himself. And and what you'll see when you read Ecclesiastes, speaking of Solomon, is that Ecclesiastes asks the hard questions that find no answer uh, apart from the gospel. Is is it is all vanity? Everything is vanity, and then we get to the we get to the New Testament, and the New Testament, Paul can say, because of Christ, your work is not in vain. Your work is not vanity, and so so yeah. So you're never gonna if you got a friend who's depressed, don't give him Ecclesiastes to read uh, uh, all by itself. No, absolutely, absolutely not. You got to read it in context of the rest of the story. Um, and so you see, even at the beginning of Second Chronicles, all the way into like chapter chapter seven and chapter eight, the building of the temple. Now, what does that have to do with Jesus? Well, uh, you have passages like Ephesians chapter two that tells us that Jesus is the cornerstone. This house is being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What is Paul saying here? What is he arguing for? He's actually arguing for a better temple. So even this building of this magnificent um, structure and architecture and gold and all the things that that it was um, 
it's pointing to a, tr- a true, true and better temple to come. And that, that temple is the church. And we are the new temple and the spirit dwells within us uh, after we become Christians. And Jesus is present with us every single week in the corporate gathering, especially in the word, prayer and sacrament. Right. And so here you see when you can read the dedication of the temple, when you when you read um, things like the Ark of the Covenant um, being brought into the temple and a cloud, which should remind you of Exodus, right? A cloud descends on the temple. Fire is called down um, and the, the glory of the Lord is among his people. That is the hope, right? That's how the story is going to end. The story is going to end uh, with a heavenly city um, descending from the heavens and the presence of God is going to fill the city. And the people of God are going to dwell among their Savior. And that that points us to Jesus. So much so that Revelation ends by saying there's going to be no need for the sun or the moon or the stars because the glory of the Lord is going to be sufficient light for the people of God. Yeah, this is a a wonderful uh, time for our listeners to indulge me again and let me give my my box top illustration of jigsaw puzzles, uh, not original to me. Uh, I think this may be a Graham Goldsworthy uh, illustration, which is when you're going to put together a jigsaw puzzle, what do you need? You need all the pieces. Uh, you need a flat surface. You need plenty of time. But there's this one thing that you absolutely need if you're going to put together a jigsaw puzzle, and that is you need the picture on the top of the box. Without the picture on the top of the box, you're not going to be able to make sense of where any of these pieces go. And what what we're doing as we zoom out from Second Chronicles and from all of these books and look at what the gospel teaches, we it allows us to put these these difficult or seemingly uh, uh, irrelevant or boring books into the proper context when we read Second Chronicles in light of the gospel. We're, we're to read all of the Old Testament in light of the gospel. Uh, and what we're doing as we zoom out and talk about the gospel is we're hopefully trying to give our listeners the box top. Here's what the Bible is about, and when you get that, then you can take this, and you can take what we're what you're what you're reading in Second Chronicles or First Chronicles, uh, and you can put it in context. You can make sense of it. That's right. That's right. Um, it's important to note before we move on, though, when we get to chapter seven and we get to the dedication of the temple, brother, we we stumble upon. upon um, this verse, verse 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, without going in into an entire episode itself, because we've already done that, yes. we're going to, we're going to call and remind our listeners to go to season three. Mm-hmm. Episode four from our Hermeneutics 101 series. Yes. And find the episode on is Second Chronicles 714 about America? The short answer is no. Right. You you're um, blowing up all my theology and you're you're gonna make me burn my Lee Greenwood albums. Oh well, you should burn your Lee Greenwood albums anyway, but that's that's another discussion for another day. Um that said, <laughs> that said. 
before you before I get canceled off Facebook again, and before you are preparing your your meme for Memorial Day for Second Chronicles seven fourteen with your with the eagle flying in glory and stars and stripes everywhere, brothers and sisters. It's not about that. For for if not no other reason, let's remember the rules that we've taught you. This is Second Chronicles. Solomon's dedicating the temple. This is written to Israel. It's in the context of um, pre-Babylonian captivity. They're um, building and dedicating the temple, and it has there in no straight form or fashion has anything to do with, with America. Furthermore, let in reading the context, it's just like with Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. This is a case I tell I tell my my students this all the time. This is a case where the principle is true, but we can't pull the principle void of context. It's true that the Lord knows plans that He has for you and for me, Scott. It's because He's sovereign and in control, right? Um, it's true that because of Jesus, we have a future and a hope, right? It's right. true that that things are going to work out. That's 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 not that's not what you should put on your graduation card that you gave you to your to your graduating seniors last week. Okay, same thing here. It is true that if we humble ourselves and pray and seek God's face and repent and turn from our wicked ways, that Jesus will hear us. He will forgive our sins and. One day he's going to heal our land. He, the, as far as the curse is found, there's going to be healing, right? To use right. A, a C.S. Lewis analogy, there's going to come a day where it won't always be winter and never Christmas, right? But that's not what this is talking about here. All right, so box over. If you want want more, go go listen to that episode where we handled it there. I just it, every time I see it, I need to remind remind my brothers and sisters. We get into chapter nine and chapter nine uh, points us to the queen of Sheba, right? This queen that had come from a faraway land to meet Solomon because word has gotten out how glorious the temple was, how wise Solomon was. Cause at this point he he's done the, the, the famous two mothers, one baby, let's saw the baby in half thing that, that, that even gets used uh, in law school now. Right. Um, and so she wants to come meet Solomon. And so that that interaction is happening in chapter nine. Now, as I, I ask often, what does that have to do with Jesus, Scott? It's got everything to do with Jesus. I would invite our, our listeners to turn over, put one finger in Second Chronicles 9, flip all the way over to Luke chapter 11. If you don't want to flip pages like I am today, let me go ahead and give a shout out to our uh, podcast sponsor, Logos Bible Software, where you could just download the essentials. I think for as easy as is $49. Now you can get a basic package of Logos. Um, and also you can download the app for free. If you go on assuranceapart.com slash Logos, there's, there's some goodies and some discounts there for you even. Um, so Luke chapter 11, you, Jesus is, is talking about the resurrection in chapter tw- uh, verse 29. Uh, and he says, talks about the sign of Jonah. And then he's going to talk about the queen of Sheba. Let's listen. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation 
is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, but no sign will be given except for the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the son of man will be to this generation. The queen of the south, that's Queen of Sheba, by the way, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up against this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here, right? Jonah is in the belly of the, the fish for three days and comes out perceived to be dead right um jesus actually died <laughs> and was in the grave for three days and on the third day rose from the dead according to the scriptures here the queen of sheba comes and she's she's wanting to marvel at the the wisdom of, of solomon and meet him in person and jesus is saying if you thought that was impressive she's even more impressed by jesus and right. and if she gets it this gentile from the ends of the earth and you guys are supposed to study the law, you're going to be condemned. I mean, that's, and that's judgment. That's prop, that's prophet Jesus one one in Luke 11, but, but it's those sorts of tie ins that we have to make the connections time and time again in our, in our Christian centric reading of the text to help us kind of see how this points together. Um, you, you see another example, chapter, chapter 18 and in second Chronicles, you see the mention of Ahab. And every time you see, Ahab, and every time you see Jezebel, the thing you should think about is is the prophet Elijah. And when you think about Elijah running from Ahab, running from Jezebel, um, you think about him being on the mountain and the still small voice and him whining that he's the only prophet left. But what what do we see? I've got a remnant that you don't know about, right? Uh, I have thousands that haven't haven't bent the knee to, to Ahab and to Jezebel. And Paul, the apostle, uses that argument to argue about the remnant of Israel and the and the saving of Israel in Romans chapter eleven. That he actually cites this this instance with Ahab and with Jezebel and with the prophet Elijah, saying, "Hey, who's to say the Lord doesn't have remnants of of believers all over the world?" And that's really really important to understand that Jesus our great and mighty King is building a kingdom of priests for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. We have brothers and sisters in Ukraine right now. We have brothers and sisters in Russia right now. Um, So even, even now we can read passages like that and we can glean knowing that Jesus in his infinite wisdom is going to save a remnant of Jewish brothers and sisters uh, between now and his return in a way that we don't fully understand in a way that they're going to understand the gospel, uh, the saved the same way we are. Uh, but you see passages like that in second Chronicles and that should actually uh, jar your mind. Amen. Another thing you see, just to kind of, again, see these little markers that'll help you. Uh, chapter 26, you see the mention of King Uzziah. And again, if you're familiar with your Bible reading, and maybe if you're not, even if you're not familiar with your Bible reading, hopefully you have a Bible open listening to this episode and this will help you. Uzziah reigns in, in Judah in chapter 26. And you should think to yourself, man, where have I seen that name before? And if you can't remember, you should flip over to Isaiah chapter six. Because in Isaiah ch- chapter six, 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And cherubim and seraphim were, were circling around him. And as R.C. Sproul says, the, the thrice holy God was worshipped, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Hey, guess what? Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. He's the exact imprint of the nature of God. So when we see pictures like that, where the Lord reveals himself to Isaiah and is holy and worshiped, and guess what? That's Jesus. That's Jesus being being worshiped in the temple. Isaiah met Jesus. Uh, And so that's really, really cool. um, When you see things like that, take you, take you on a, on another Adventure and, and as you're going through, I know it seems like we're skipping chapters and chunks. I do want, want you to see here uh, along the way as you're reading these chapters, you're you're still going to see this tension. And we've kind of we've covered this um, kind of ad nauseum. I feel like in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and First Chronicles, I didn't want to rehash it again. But just as a reminder, you're going to see tension even mentioned among these kings of good kings of bad kings, of terrible kings. Um, And it's just a reminder of this tension and the hope that the writers of the Old Testament want you to see that they're longing for a king that's going to be better. They're longing for a king that actually they can count on, that isn't going to fail morally, that isn't going to lead them into captivity, isn't going to lead them into idolatry, that one is actually going to teach them that it's going to be the true, better prophet, priest, and king. And that, that king is Jesus. And so you get into chapter 30, and it seems as all the dimensions of, you know, Ahaz's idolatry or Ahab's failures or Jezebel or Hezekiah or Uzziah or who, who all, the, all these other kings that are mentioned. Then you get chapter 30 and you see Hezekiah um, introduces the Passover. Now, why in the midst of all these mentions of kings and, and things is the mention of Passover celebrated and reenacted with temple worship being brought because there's this continual thread and Chad Bird does a great job of this. Again, um, if you want to go look at, look at these resources, I would encourage you um, this year's uh, regional here. We still stand message by Chad Bird last year's regional here. We still stand message by Chad Bird does a great job in particular that there's this constant thread of Exodus, but I would also argue there's this constant kind of marker of the Passover, that every time the people of God seem to come back to themselves, that they come back to temple worship, they come back from captivity, they come back from idolatry, they kind of, you know, get right again, they continuously come back to this meal. Why is it? Because this Passover points to something true and better that we find in Jesus. Because Jesus did that, right? He took the Passover meal on the night that he was he was betrayed. He took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And then after supper, uh, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Institute, instituting a new covenant for you. And so as he as he's in, enacting this meal, we see that time and time again, regardless of what kind of week we've had, Scott, whether we've been great or where we absolutely blew it, we come back to the corporate gathering in this covenant renewing ceremony back to the table and reminding ourselves again, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Yeah, under, understanding what's going on at Passover is so key. Understanding God's rescue of the Israelites out of their slavery, 
in Egypt. Um, understanding that, we, we've got to understand that if we're going to understand the Lord's Supper. If we've got to understand that to understand our own salvation, uh, Gage, uh, uh, here at, at our church, we're, I'm preaching through the book of Revelation. And uh, yesterday we were in Revelation chapter 14 and 15. And John is given this picture of, uh, of the redeemed in heaven worshiping, uh, worshiping God. And it's talking about them singing. And it says, this is Revelation 15, 3. And they sing the song of Moses the servant of God and the song of the lamb saying, great and amazing are your deeds. O Lord, God almighty, just and true are your ways. O King of nations who will not fear. Uh, o Lord and glorify your name for the, the, So the question goes, why does it say they're singing the song of Moses? Well, because this is really the song that was sung by the Israelites when they came across the Red Sea and God closed the Red Sea over the Egyptians and drowned them, they sang a song. And what was the song? The song of Moses that they sang there was a song celebrating God's rescue of them from their captivity to their captivity and their bondage and slavery. And so what we're supposed to see is that that rescue of the Israelites from Egypt is Here's a big word, paradigmatic of our rescue through what Christ did. Jesus is, to quote Keller, the truer and better Moses who who frees us from a greater slavery, a greater captor, a greater bondage, and leads us into a greater promised land. That's right. That's right. And just to show you that we're not just pulling this, this out of thin air, um, last night I had the privilege um, on the Lord's Day to install some deacons. And uh, the the sermon that I got to preach um, was from Mark um, chapter 10. And as you get into Mark chapter 10, um, Jesus predicts his um, death a third time, right? I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to get arrested. I'm going to get beaten. I'm going to die. And on the third day, I'm going to raise from the dead. <coughs> Excuse me. And a third time, uh the disciples don't know how to deal with it, right? The first time Peter pulls him to the side, the second time they get into an argument with themselves about who's the greatest, the third time James and John, and depending on Matthew's account, his mama, their mama, uh, shows up and they want to vie for their seat at the table, right? My, my sons are good boys. Can they sit at the left and the right right hand, right? And they're, they're vying for their greatness. They're vying for... Um, making Israel great again, and they're going to build back better, and and all those things, <laughs> and and they're they're vying for the seat at the table, right? And Jesus absolutely just pulls them to the side and says, "Okay, we got to have a teaching moment." Um, the Gentiles they do that nonsense, right? But it's not supposed to be so among you. Whoever wants to be be great, be a servant. Who wants to be uh, first of all, must be slave of all. And then he goes on and says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Literally translated in the Greek, for the son of man came not to be deaconed to, but to deacon and give his life as a ransom for many. The beautiful p- picture there of what this has to do with the Exodus and what this has to do with Passover is the the play on words that Jesus is u- uses here. Not only about the uh, variations of the word where we get the word deacon, but also the use of the word ransom. A ransom 
was a payment given to free a person from slavery, right? You paid a ransom to free them from captivity. Guess what? Jesus, by his own body and blood, ransomed the people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He paid a payment for us so that we might be uh, rescued, redeemed, passed over, um, and freed to serve. Right. And that was my point the other night, that last night with the, the deacons and not just the deacons, but the church as a whole. But even as you see this here, you see Jesus as the true and better Moses is leading an exodus out of the captivity of darkness and sin and death and hell and wrath. And, and instead leading us to freedom and life and, and, and a better, better promised land. And so as we bring this to a close, I want to just kind of highlight a few things. First, you see as it it kind of crescendos in chapters 34 and on to the end of the book you see Josiah um this this young king who's bringing temple worship back who's trying to bring the people back to God he discovers the law they had lost the law in the midst of all the crazy kings that they had they just like it it got disappeared and Josiah shows up and he's like oh what are these books Oh, snap, we're supposed to be following this. And so uh, you see even that this type and shadow of, of, of proper worship being led by the king over his people. And that's that's Jesus. Again, that, that points us to Jesus. But the beautiful part about this is you get in even to Judah's decline in chapter 36, and you get little hints of this that I think, think is really, really neat. Like, for example, <clears throat> um, the verse verse 11 to 36 in Judah's decline, it's mentioning these kings and it's mentioning kind of, okay, okay uh, Jehoiakim, he was terrible. And this Nebuchadnezzar did this. And Zedekiah who was, tw- uh, was 21 years old when he became, began to reign. He reigned for 11 years and he did what was evil in the sight of God. So it's going to sound like the book of Judges over and over and over. But then it says things like this. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet. And you see, again, the mention of that um, in verse 17, where it talks about Jerusalem's capture and burning and the rising of the Chaldeans. And it says that all this happened, verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Then you see, again, from the proclamation of Cyrus, which is also mentioned um, at the beginning of, I believe, Nehemiah, you, you see the mention of Cyrus, the king of Persia, and you see this mentioning here, um, they would they would build a house, and it actually says to fulfill the words of Jeremiah. And so it's it's great that you see even then in Second Chronicles this connection of the ministry of Jeremiah back it back into what's going on here. That this Bible is one story. There's one thing happening, and you also kind of appreciate Jeremiah, who's the, known as the weeping prophet. Um, and seeing, you know, he is um, the prophet of no respect, right? No one knows he's the Rodney Dangerfield of prophets, right? Like he gets no respect. No one listens to him. And his whole ministry ends with him walking naked into captivity, right? You just, and, you just lost all the millennials with your Rodney Dangerfield reference. Yeah, Google it. So um, <laughs> with all that, um, 
it's really important to see the connections and the dots of how this story right. is being built. And Jeremiah honestly is validated at the at the end of Second Chronicles of like, hey, all the things that I told you were going to happen, yeah, they happened. Um, but not only that, it's important for us to understand not to read this again out of the context of what's happening. It's really, really popular, depending on if you if your guy's got a D or an R next to his name um, or an independent or you're a libertarian, if that's the case. Right. And, and you're hoping for a candidate that will be like Ron Swanson and tell you that taxation is theft, whatever the case may be. Please don't read this as Cyrus is Trump or Cyrus is Biden or Cyrus is whatever the candidate is going to be that's going to lead you into the better promised land and is going to act as a outside advocate for the, for the rise of the empire of evangelicalism. Okay, that's that's not what's happening. There is actually something bigger and better happening uh, because Second Chronicles in the Hebrew order of the Bible is the last book in, in the Old Testament, and so. It actually, in the Hebrew order, instead of the English order, where Malachi, for us in the English Bible, is the last book, in the Hebrew order, the the narrative ends by looking and asking this question at the end of 2 Chronicles, the very last question, uh, verse 23, it says, Thus Cyrus, the king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem which is in Judah, whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord, his God be with you and let him go up. David in Psalm 24 asked the question, who will ascend to the hill? That's Jerusalem, right? And who will go for us? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift his soul to what is false. Hey, guess what? that disqualifies everybody else in the room except for one person, and his name is Jesus. Boom, Matthew chapter 1. Here's the lineage. Here's the one that actually will go up for us. That's it right there, folks. That's right. So we hope this is helpful, and we hope you can see uh, what we're seeing. If you can't, we'd love to dialogue with you. We'd love to set up a Zoom call. We'd love to grab coffee with you. You can always... um, Actually, click on our link, buy us a cup of coffee. We'd, we'd love to sit down with you um, and hash, hash these out. Even if you don't buy us a cup, cup of coffee, we'd love to hash these out with you. You can always hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Um, you can uh, also message us. On, we love to get messages from the website at assuranceofpardon.com, um, or you can email us at contact at Assurance of Pardon. Many different ways to get in contact with us. Uh, Scott's in Hot Springs at Hope Church. Um, Hot Springs, Arkansas, and I'm at First Press, Dyersburg, and Dyersburg, Tennessee. We'd love to have you. If you're in the area, come attend our church. Um, and Scott, until next time, this is the Shins of Pardon. God bless. Bye.